The hardest part in a certain sense is the same, which is that fintech's really hard and complex. The products are complex, the spaces are regulated, the rules aren't always like designed for the modern online experience, there's, there's entrenched incumbents, there's aging infrastructure. If you can abstract away all that complexity from the customer and reduce it all down to a simple and elegant experience where it feels like there's nothing actually going on, it's that kind of experience that drives engagement. And it's just really hard, not everybody can do that. One of the great things about doing a second fintech startup is that substantively there is some stuff that's easier, but the core problem of fintech is building really great products that can align all of those different functions that all need to execute really well. That's been the same across both. Hi everyone, it's Julie Verhage Greenberg here with your Tux Time podcast from Fintech Today, where we talk about all things fintech. And in this episode, I am joined by Daniel Simon, previously co-founder of Bread and now founder and CEO of Coast, both companies that are touching the fintech space. So Daniel, I'm excited to have you on here. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for having me, Julie. Uh, you know, it's not every day I get to have a, a double founder on this podcast. So let's start off with your previous company here. Before we dive into the first one, because I have a feeling there are some things that happened with your first company that sort of led you to starting this second company as well as who you got invested in it and who you are founding it with as well. But tell me a little bit about what Bread did and the, the exit that you guys had. Sure. Yeah. And, and uh, so big congratulations to the Bread team over there. The credit really goes to them, especially to, to, to Josh, my co-founder and the CEO of Bread. Bread uh, is a consumer financial services company that operates primarily in e-commerce, what sort of is uh, typically these days called uh, the buy now, pay later space. We created uh, fair and transparent uh, financial products that allowed consumers who were buying stuff online uh, to pay in easy monthly installments uh, and layered on uh, sort of other payments products beyond that uh, to help our retailer customers engage more with their customers and lead to better outcomes and higher sales for them and to help consumers pay for their purchases with fair and transparent financial products. Yeah. Now, just for someone that might be somewhat familiar with the buy now, pay later space, but not you know, the nitty gritty of it, what would be the difference between someone like Bread and someone like Affirm or Klarna, some other ones that we've heard a lot about before? Well, Bread is, um, or at least it was in, in my time there, uh, you know, a competitor of some of those folks. Our, our strategy was really to focus on creating a product that really uh, was sort of very white label, uh, conform to uh, the brand and the products, the, the, the customers and marketing of our merchants really uh, adapt to them, how carry their brand uh, sort of first and foremost so that they could drive that greater loyalty and engagement. And, and we made as a result the product more customizable so that, you know, however a merchant wanted to use use bread across product pages and checkout and, and through various forms of digital marketing, we would conform our product to them rather than trying to go forward with a consumer facing brand, which has been sort of more of the strategy of some of the folks that you mentioned. Now, you know, co-founding a company and then leaving it is a really big decision. I have a feeling it was something that you didn't decide to do just overnight. You probably thought about it for a very long time. Tell me, what was it that made you want to leave the day-to-day -day at Bread? Was it because you had this other new idea? Is it because you wanted to start a new company again or something completely different? I did want to start something again. So yeah, I had left my operating role at Bread uh, about a year prior to the announcement of the exit. My only associations with Bread uh, at the time of sale were, were as a founder, a shareholder, and a friend of the company. You know, my role at the company had changed as, as the company matured and its needs changed. And Josh was doing a really great job as a CEO. Uh, and I left really precisely to, to do it all over again. I really, really enjoyed the process of sort of building a company from the ground up and, and wanted to do it all over again, but this time as a CEO. 
my timing could have been better. Like 2020 was a, a weird year to end up having taken a sabbatical, but you know, things are tough all around. So I'm not going to complain. Uh, you know, I knew I would do something new in early stage fintech, but I didn't have like the thing that I was really excited about. You know, I kicked around early stage fintech for a while. Um, I was uh, advising a handful of startups. I was an entrepreneur in residence at Foundation, which is a Silicon Valley VC. Before the pandemic, the wonderful people at Box Group gave me a desk in their office in Union Square to work out of and said, hey, you know, like figure out what you're going to do next uh, so I could be sort of around other folks in the sort of early stage startup community. Um, and it's actually pretty great, you know, after being like laser focused on the problems of one company for more than five years to pick my head up and be like, okay, what else is everybody else working on? And what are the problems and challenges are there? What's exciting, frankly, was not exciting to me uh, in early stage fintech. And it was, it was in the context of those sort of explorations and conversations that, you know, I found out about this fleet payments category, which if I'm being candid with you, like a year and a half ago, I didn't even know existed as a category, but I haven't been able to think about anything else ever since and decided eventually that sort of I needed to, 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 to build a company there. You know, and, and so why I want to start like another company, you know, it's funny, you know, I, I'm at the age where like, I, I don't have kids, but like all, all of my friends have kids between the age of say like three and nine years old. And, you know, uh, I saw what happened to them. A similar thing happened to me having a venture back startup, you know, like I, I used to be an interesting person with like a rich and diverse intellectual life. And then I had a venture back startup and all of a sudden I want to speak incessantly into no one's interest about my startup. And like, do you want to see pictures of my startup? And only want to talk to other people's startups about how they're raising their startups. Became a really boring person. You know, it, it, it's, it's like, it's all consuming. It's stressful. It's, it, it's terrifying. And I'm having the time of my life and I can't imagine doing anything else. And so here I am sort of having my second kid, so to speak. If, if you're one of the incredibly fortunate people who can get venture capital funding to go after like a really ambitious vision and mission, it can be a really incredible thing to get to build the kind of company you want to work in, surround yourself with the people who share your values and, and build a culture that reflects those values. It's really difficult to imagine doing anything else. Yeah. Now you mentioned fleet payments. That is, you said you didn't know anything about it until about a year ago when you had this idea. I didn't know anything about it until I started researching your new company to ask you questions on this podcast. So I have a feeling a lot of people listening to this also do not know what fleet payments are. Like, give me the TLDR. So basically, if you're a company in the US that owns or operates a fleet of vehicles, that could be the $800 billion trucking business, by the way, but it's also like plumbers and landscape crews, HVAC installers, you name it. You've got this commercial payments need that's in a lot of ways analogous to the need that's solved by, if you want venture-backed examples like Brex or Ramp, or really your Amex corporate card, which is you need to be able to give your employees something they can use to pay for job-related expenses. But when those expenses have to do with the vehicle, which could be maintenance or really gas, like buying gas is the biggest use case, uh, and the employees are your drivers, you have a bunch of really specialized needs to prevent any waste or abuse or fraud, uh, you want to make sure that people are buying the right stuff. You want to be able to control spending and get insights on what's happening, not just by the employee, but also associated with the vehicle, control times of day and days per week, and, and, and really have that visibility at the line item level of transaction detail that you don't get from general commercial solutions. There's a handful of incumbents in the space that built specialized closed loop uh, card payments networks specifically for fuel integrated at hundreds of thousands of gas pumps across the country. Uh, and these are huge companies, like, you know, like probably between the three major incumbents, it's like 40 or $50 billion of enterprise value in the US alone. There have been a handful of technical and regulatory developments over the last several years that allow me now working with sort of modern card issuing platforms like the folks you know, like, you know, Marketa and Stripe issuing and Lithic Privacy. Uh, and with the data that's currently being passed from gas stations to commercially issued Visa MasterCards in just the last few years, 
as well as the development of sort of these telematics devices that plug into vehicles and provide all sorts of data about what's going on with the vehicle, I can now build a really great product that provides the best-in-class experience for drivers and fleet owners or managers and do it on the Visa MasterCard rails to really compete with some of these older companies that have built such a giant market that accounts for more than 10% of USB to b card spending every single year and that nobody ever thinks about. And that's super-duper exciting. Now, do you make money on those swipe fees then or what? Where, what's your cash flow look like? That's a great question. So we charge a simple, flat, transparent fee to the customer. One of the one of the challenges, sort of in the state of the art of the industry, has been that fee, uh, fees charged by the uh, incumbents are often very difficult to understand for fleet owners and managers, and can add up to thousands of dollars for small businesses. We charge a very flat subscription fee that's based on the number of employees uh, who use the card product uh, in a given month. That accounts for about half of our revenue, and the other half of the revenue comes, as you say, from the interchange that we make from on people using the card to buy gas at gas stations. Now, when you guys co-founded Red, what, like a decade ago or something like that, fintech looked very different. A lot of people didn't really understand what it was. They might think it was just like a silly app on their phone. Robinhood didn't have very many users and now it's got millions of them. It's going public at a many, many billion dollar valuation. Uh, talk to me a little bit about exploring the idea for bread and what fintech was like then versus exploring the idea for Coast, your new company, and what fintech looks like now. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that the so it was, it was seven years ago. We started the company in early 2014. Um, the biggest difference in a lot of ways from me, from, for me from the standpoint of a founder that's trying to build a fintech product. Um, is that the tools are there now that really weren't before. And, and that, that includes, you know, the, the banking as a service platforms, like like Unit includes the card issuing platforms I mentioned, like Marketa and Stripe and Lithic Privacy, but other parts of the stack as well. At Bread, we built everything at first like soup to nuts in-house. Like it was the KYC decisioning, it was a ledger for loan servicing, the credit decisioning. Uh, because when we looked out at the market, there was nothing really available that could drive the experience that we wanted to provide for our customers. And as a result of that, the products take more time to launch, and, and you always need teams to do ongoing enhancement and maintenance of those parts of the business that aren't actually the core differentiated thing that you're bringing to market. But over the time that we were building bread, like like take Alloy as, as, as a great example, which, which is a risk decisioning platform for identity verification, KYC. Uh, and account opening fraud, that product grew and matured. And then later on at Bread, we were able to integrate it so we could more cheaply and rapidly iterate on our anti-fraud and ID verification and focus on other stuff driving the core customer experience. There's all these, there's a persona for identity document verification, Oculus for document spreading, like all that stuff wasn't there when we started and it's there now. Now those tools allow us to focus on core value, which means we can build better experience faster for customers and more efficiently. And, and by the way, it's not just the software tools. In addition to the tools, with the growth in fintech, the other service providers have really professionalized their offerings from uh, a growing number of bin sponsored banks, the law firms, the debt funds, and everybody else. Like, there are the resources to run a playbook. Founders don't have to figure this stuff out from scratch and cobble it together in a way that I felt we did need to when we were doing the last company starting in 2014. The level of interest in fintech in the general business world is at a completely different level. Like when we started Bread, there definitely weren't fintech classes being taught at Harvard Business School the way there are now, which, which <laughs> still blows my mind, frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people didn't know what we were doing in purchase finance. You know, I remember people saying, "What is this buy now, pay later? Shouldn't you be doing mortgages? Those loans are bigger." Like people just completely didn't understand what we were talking about. Now, by the way, the term BNPL appears in like half a dozen fintech newsletters that show up in my inbox every week. On the one hand, it, it does make hiring folks in New York a little bit easier because they're already excited about fintech as a category as opposed to, say, media or, 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 or ad tech or something. 
Uh, on the other hand, now you have to compete with all the other fintechs because because there's, there's a bunch more of those uh, as well for great talent. And by the way, I suppose correlated with that, that there's more access by fintechs to the equity capital markets than ever. I, I mean, markets are obviously up generally, but in fintech in particular, I think that venture capital has really woken up to how huge these markets we're going after can be in financial services. And the level of enthusiasm for fintech investing in 2021, it seems like on a different order of magnitude from where it was in 2014. Yeah. And what was the hardest part about starting Bread? And what has been the hardest part about starting Coast? In a certain sense, one of the things, like the hardest part in a certain sense is the same, which is that fintech's really hard and complex. Like it, it sounds like stupid and obvious to say it, um, but, you know, fintech requires just getting a lot right to build a, a great product that lasts. It's not just distribution, like in other businesses, like marketing and media and partnerships and sales and success. It's also like finance and capital markets and risk and analytics and operations and servicing and collections and a lot of legal and compliance and obviously product engineering. The, the, the products are complex. The spaces are regulated. The rules aren't always meant to, to be like designed for the modern online experience. There's, there's entrenched incumbents. There's aging infrastructure. If you can abstract away all that complexity from the customer and reduce it all down to a simple and elegant experience where it feels to the customer like there's nothing actually going on, even though there's a ton under the hood, it's that kind of experience that drives engagement. And it's just really hard. Not everybody can do that. If you can build a team that can navigate all that complexity, uh, that itself can become a barrier to entry for new competitors that want to come in and go after the business that you're building uh, to try to compete with you. you know, and, and, and some of these things, like, like the legal side, for instance, like they seem like they're like annoying back office functions that distract from the cool, sexy stuff on the growth side. But getting them right, in my opinion, can be strategic differentiators in, in the long run. One of the great things about doing a second fintech startup is that substantively, I know a lot of this stuff now. Like, like how to think about debt funding a loan book is like not something that I knew in 2014, but I actually am pretty um, uh, experienced in it now. The concepts aren't new to me. I can go execute on them with confidence. And I also just kind of know philosophically about how to think about them together. So I would say... Um, there is some stuff that's easier, like what I mentioned, particularly equity capital, sort of the, the sort of the familiarity in the general public and the talent pool for hiring with the category writ large. But the but the core problem of fintech, just building really great products that can align all of those different functions that all need to execute really well, that, that's been the same across both. What are some other examples of either things or certain times in Bread's history that really were were hard at the time, but you grew a lot from them. Yeah, I would say, you know, I think that the key moments that I took away from Red were first, like, the decision to uh, sell our product to the end consumer users through the partnership channel of merchant distribution. Um, you know, Josh had a very, my, my, my partner and the CEO, Brad, he, he had a very central insight. You know, online lending at the time had been getting a lot of attention. There had been a lot of innovation, for instance, in the personal loans category, but that was still a tiny, tiny fraction of the trillion dollars of unsecured consumer credit in the US, which is mostly people buying stuff on credit cards. And he realized if you want to bring the efficiency and transparency and pro-consumerism and low cost, of the online marketplace lending world to the rest of that trillion dollar market, you need to make a part of people's day to day lives. You need to make a part of buying stuff. But we didn't know how we were going to do that. Like we would thought, like there would be an app and you would download money or something when, when you need to pay for stuff. Like like we 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 didn't really know. And it, as we started to think about 
how we're going to acquire the consumer for this. We were like, well, this is going to be really, really hard, you know, and we don't really know what's going to be an efficient mechanism to grow this consumer business. And, and it was then that we, we kind of pretty quick, when we raised our initial like angel round, like way back in the day, like we were thought it was going to be a direct consumer business. We very, very quickly within a couple of months realized actually it's partner distribution through an embedded offering that's going to drive our growth. And that, you know, really proved itself out. And that's a lesson that, that I took away. My, my current business starting out with direct acquisition, but I think that there are really interesting opportunities for embedded distribution with partners over time. The other thing is sort of I've learned a lot about sort of being customer centric through what I was describing earlier, a white label approach to the product to really say, how can our product serve you, the customer, and not really just our own interests in acquiring your end customers. That differentiated us from the branded folks, allowed us to be more integrated into the customer experience. And I think that just drove uh, real customer loyalty and engagement. And then finally, I think I just learned a lot about sort of general stuff around culture and team and, and, and how to leverage myself. We stuck to our guns on hiring a lot. We would pass on a lot of you know otherwise qualified candidates if they just weren't what we thought was exactly right for the company, even when the needs were, were, were huge and the roles were specialized and hard. You know, I, I, I know like everybody likes to say this, but the thing that I'm proudest of from my time at the previous company was the team we built across all the functions that I mentioned. I don't think the company would have succeeded without such an exceptionally strong and frankly humble team that shared our values and believed in the vision. I know it feels cheesy and generic and there are other ways to build a startup team, but I happen to believe in ours and, and I'm very much doing it again uh, to build a phenomenal team at Coast. So something else I've enjoyed asking people is one of the closing questions here is if there was one company other than one of your own, I should say, normally I say your own, but you technically have two that are, are your own now that you could invest in today that's still private, what company would it be? That's an interesting <laughs> one. I'll, I'll give you two. I admire both of these companies very much in sort of um, not quite early, early stage fintech, either one, um, sort of both of them uh, already sort of doing phenomenally well and growing. But I like Alloy a lot. Like, I, I just think that, again, when you talk about sort of like a humble customer oriented team, and particularly sort of just understanding what the building blocks of financial services infrastructure actually consist of, there are very few companies I think of that, that, that really get it quite the same way. And, and Tom is a phenomenal CEO, uh, and, and Laura and Char, the, the whole team. Um, and, and then uh, the second one, which I feel is a little bit trite uh, currently, but uh, I still really, really admire them is, is the folks at Ramp. They're building sort of an analogous product uh, coast use case in the sense that it's also a commercial payment solution, but sort of really focused on solving problems for back office finance function types with simple payment solutions. So I, I think both companies are going to continue to do really, really well and didn't get the chance to invest in either one of them or, uh, early on, but yeah, w w wish I were on those cap tables. Uh, and since you run two companies of your own, I'll let it slide and uh, let you mention two companies versus just one. <laughs> uh, thank you, Daniel, for joining us. I, I told you this would fly by. That's 20 minutes already. But we really appreciate you being here. Once Coast has uh, you know, more runway under its feet and you guys have more exciting announcements, I can't wait to have you on again. I'm sure that will be much sooner rather than later. It was great talking to you, Julie. Thanks so much for having me on. Until next time. Thank you, guys. Thank you.